Remember back in the day when everyone got up on Monday morning and went to work? I've worked from home for a long time, but I do remember having jobs with that kind of routine. Wake up, take a shower, have some coffee and breakfast, drive to work, and come back home at the end of the day. Next morning, you do the same thing. In the past couple of years, because of the pandemic, a lot more people are working from home instead of going into an office. But still, even if you don't leave your house, your work process means that there are things you do each day, day after day. To some extent, that can get kind of boring. But in some ways, there's a certain comfort in that routine because you know exactly what to expect. When you go to work, you know, for the most part, what's going to happen. My conversation today is with Jeff. He had a job that was pretty routine. It was manual labor, not very enjoyable, but he knew what to expect. He knew each day what was going to happen when he got to work. Except one day. When he arrived at work on this particular day, he had no idea that this would be his last day working at this job. He also would have never guessed that even though he arrived at work that day with two arms, he would leave with only one. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. 
He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. How old were you when this happened? I was 18 years old, had just graduated from high school about a month earlier, and was four days away from my college orientation. So this was summer. You got a summer job. What was that? What what, what were you doing? I was actually working two jobs at the time of my accident. One of my jobs was working at Taco Bell. I had been working at Taco Bell for two years. I was the the annoying guy that when you came through the drive through, I was like, "Welcome to the border. Can I take your order?" And so I had been working doing that for two two solid years. But the summer before I started college, my dad uh, got me a job at the glass plant that he had been working at for twenty three years. It was basically me and seven other college students or soon to be college students who were working at this glass factory, just trying to earn a little bit of extra money before we went to college. Did you like working there? I would say no, (laughs) only because it was so hard. It's the hardest work I'd ever done in my life. They they actually called our team the rats because we were the people that went into the areas of the factory that nobody else wanted to go into. We were sent into the dirtiest areas, the hottest areas. Like our first day on the job... After our, you know, orientation, we had to go to what's called the hot end and rake out glass that when glass is being made, when they're, they run it through a furnace. And if there are any imperfections in the glass, it'll shatter and fall to the bottom of the furnace. You know, well, somebody's got to clean it up. So why not the soon to be eight college students? And so we're sticking these really long metal rakes inside of this blazing hot furnace, raking glass out. It was so hot in there that they wouldn't let us wear any kind of jewelry. 
because like if you had on a gold necklace, it would actually heat up to the point that it would start to to burn your neck. So we had to take all any kind of jewelry we had on, we had to take it off if we were going to be working in the hot end. Not exactly a dream job. <laughs> no, but you can do anything for a little while, right? To make for, for a little while, yes. Um, <laughs> making tacos and burritos was was a lot easier than raking glass out of a furnace. And you know, you just said you know you can do anything for a little while, and and that's what I did because I only worked there for ten days. Not by choice. Not by <laughs> choice. Not by choice. But I only worked there for for ten solid days. All right. Well, let's talk about what happened that day. But before we get into that, I need you to explain, because this is a critical part of the story, what is a screw auger? A screw auger, if any of the listeners don't understand, it's basically a giant screw. And there is a casing that wraps around the screw. So the way a screw auger works is when you turn it on, this giant screw starts to turn on the inside of the auger. And so when you drop debris into the auger, it gets caught in the threads of that giant screw. And as you can picture a screw turning, the debris gets caught in the threads of that auger and it just pushes it up the shaft that the the giant screw is in. And then it drops it out of a chute on the opposite end. So it's, you're throwing debris and it's taking it to a dumpster or something? Yes, sir. We were from our job site. We were getting this debris, loading it into the auger, and we would dump it in on one end. And the auger actually went up a flight of stairs. And on the opposite end of the uh, stairs was a dumpster. And so the debris, when it would fall out, it would fall into the dumpster. Now, it seems like one of the issues here was that there really wasn't any safety equipment in place. Right. Was there anything that should have been there that wasn't anything that should have been there? Wasn't basically all of the safety equipment had been removed from this piece of machinery. The factory bought it, bought this screw auger from a local farm. And when they bought it, it's unclear whether the safety equipment didn't come with it or once it got there, the safety equipment was removed. I believe what happened was at least some of the safety equipment came with it and it was removed because at the opening of the auger where you dump the debris, there's supposed to be a grating that goes over the opening of the machine. And that keeps you from being able to get any clothing or body parts or anything down inside the auger. So it keeps it safer. But somebody said that they had removed it because made the job so much slower because you had to take the pieces of debris and break them down smaller and smaller and smaller until they would fit inside the of the grating. Well, the only bad thing about that is, is then you can put pieces of debris inside of the auger that are too big to actually fit into where the screw auger is. The opening to the auger, you know, was a lot bigger. But once it gets down to where the auger is, it's a it's a lot smaller piece of of equipment. And so, uh, you know, a big piece can get into the auger, but not actually get down into the threads of the screw auger. And that's really the reason for what happened. Well, that day, it like I said, this was my 10th day on the job, but it was only my second day out of the hot end. Uh, my first day out of the hot end, we were in a different area of the plant. But on this day, my 10th day on the job, 
what we were doing is there was this debris, there was like a powdery type substance that they used in the glass making process. They would drop this powdery substance onto this conveyor belt. Well, when, when they would drop this substance onto the conveyor belt, the dust would billow up and settle on the ground. Well, this plant had been open for more than 20 years. And from what it looked like, nobody had ever cleaned the floor of that of the silo area where we were working. And so where that dust would billow up and settle on the ground and it had been doing it for over 20 years and where people were walking on it in some areas, this debris was, was caked, you know, three, four inches thick. And so what our job was to go in there with shovels, bust that debris up on the floor, load it into wheelbarrows and then run the wheelbarrow from our job site to the screw auger. We would dump the debris into the auger and then it would, as it went up the shaft and fell into the dumpster, there was a guy at the dumpster who would take a shovel or a rake and he would push the debris from the front to the back of the dumpster so it all didn't pile up under the opening. When I was working that day, I had either had a shovel in my hand all day or I was running the wheelbarrow back and forth from our job site to the auger. When we went on our lunch break, we came back and when we did, everybody switched jobs. And I was the, now the guy who was standing at the base of the screw auger. They told me my job, when you're standing at the base of the auger, your job is make sure everything goes down okay. They didn't say, if it doesn't go down okay, this is what you do. They just said, make sure everything goes down okay. And so the very first load we did when we came back from lunch, a buddy of mine that I'd played baseball with my entire life, he came, dumped a load of debris into the auger, turns around and walks away. Well, I look down into the auger and most of it is going in the way it's supposed to. But there is one piece of debris that's a lot bigger than the rest of the pieces of debris that went into the auger that was too big to fit. And so I started figuring out, okay, how can I make that piece of debris go down? There wasn't like a rake or a shovel or anything like that at my job site because they were all at the job site where all the debris was being cleaned up from. Because if I would have seen one of those, I would have just taken the handle and tried to break the piece down. But because there wasn't anything like that there, and again, I'm, I know my job is make sure everything goes down okay. So I thought I was just thinking, get the job done. So what I decided to do was to reach in and grab that piece of debris. I was going to take it out, bust it on the ground, pick the pieces up, and put it back into the auger. Well, we had on gloves called gauntlet gloves, and. A gauntlet glove is basically like a regular glove, but at the wrist, it flares out just a little bit, like bell-bottom jeans for your wrist. So when I reached in and grabbed that piece of debris, I felt a tug. And when I did, I immediately jerked back as hard as I could with both of my arms. And my left arm came out fine, and my right arm didn't. And what had happened was when I grabbed that piece of debris, the thread of the auger pinched the corner of my glove between the auger and the casing that that went around the screw and so I started jerking as hard as I could trying to get my hand out of my glove but by that time my glove had been cinched around my wrist really tight and the machine was the way the auger was rotating it was kind of rotating down and away from me in a circle and so my hand actually went down into the auger it started it was taken under the auger and then brought back up towards me. I remember my wrist dislocating. Then I remember hearing my forearm snap in half. 
and my arm was at this point just starting to get wrapped inside. While that was happening, I'm I'm pulling, trying to get myself out. But at this point, the machine actually started to pick me up off the ground and I was starting to be pulled in head first. And so at that point, I started screaming, one, because it hurt and two, because I wanted somebody to come turn the machine off because I knew that I, I wasn't I wasn't going to be able to get myself out. So the guy who was at the other end of the auger, he heard me screaming and he he came and visited me when I was in the hospital and he turned he told me he said when I turned around he said you were about halfway into the machine at that point so he runs down the the stairs runs around the machine and turns it off and at this point I'm about six inches to a foot from being completely head first into the machine so when he turns the machine off I'm holding on to the outside of the machine with my left arm my right arm had was obviously wrapped on the inside. My right shoulder was dislocated. My left shoulder actually got dislocated as well from hanging onto the outside of the machine, trying to stop myself from being pulled in. And so when he got the machine turned off, even though my left shoulder was dislocated, I was able to work my way out of the machine. And when I did, my right arm was gone. I could see bone sticking out. I kind of looked like a blood sprinkler. Blood was just spraying everywhere. And so I'm standing there and the guy who turned the machine off, he's standing there looking at me and then he just turns around and takes off running. I didn't know where he was going, but I knew I didn't want to be by myself. So I took off running after him. That just seems like the oddest response for him and for you, not to get down on the floor, I'll help stop the bleeding or anything, just run. Just run. And he told me later, he he told me that he said, let's go. I don't remember that. But he, he told me, he said, let's go. And so he took off running. I didn't hear anything. But like I said, I didn't want to be by myself. And I had a feeling if I if you stay here, you're going to die. And so when he took off running, I took off running after him. So we're running through this area of the plant called the silos where we were working that day. Honestly, I was holding my right arm directly out in front of me because of the way I was losing the blood. For some reason, if I held it, if I left my arm hanging next to my side, I could feel every time my heart would beat, I could feel the blood shoot into my side. I guess the way the arteries and vessels were torn, it was just facing that direction. So I actually held my arm out in front of me. So when my blood, when my heart would beat, you could see the blood. There was a, just a shot of blood that would shoot out in front of my face. It sounds like a Quentin Tarantino movie scene. A little bit, a little bit. It was, it was very Tarantino-esque, just seeing it. And the fact that it was hitting a wall that was 10 feet to my left-hand side, that's how far my blood was, was shooting in you could actually tell every step I took. It looked like McDonald's arches. You could see every step I took. As we were running, that was when I started thinking, where are we going? Because I'm not running for sport. I'm not training for anything. And so I remembered as we were running that there was an office that was about 50 to 75 yards away. And I knew that a lot of times there was somebody in the office, but if there wasn't, there was a phone in there. and we could call for help. 
we're running through the the bottom of the silos, then up a flight of stairs, through a set of doors, and then I ran over to this office. And I'll be honest, I had never had my arm ripped off by a machine before, so I was kind of learning as I was going. Um, I had never read a book on what to do if you have your arm ripped off by a machine, so I was in a little bit of a state of shock as well. And so when I ran up to the office, there's this giant plate glass window, and I ran up to the window, and I just stood there looking in. I didn't knock on the window. I didn't open the door to the office and say, hey, does anybody in here have a Band-Aid or anything like that? I just stood there looking in the window. There were three guys in the office. They all saw me. I, I talked to one of the guys years later, and he told me that the two guys immediately looked at him and said, "We, I can't go out there because the sight of blood, they just couldn't handle it. And so he said, I'll go out there, but listen for me. If I need something, help me out. So he runs out to where I am. This guy actually used to be a bouncer at a nightclub. He's a, a mountain of a man. Actually, his nickname was was Mountain Dew. Um, he was a mountain of a man. And he came out and he tackled me down on the ground. And he told me later, he said, I was scared that if I didn't get you on the ground, you were in such shock that you were going to take off running again. So he gets me down on the ground and he yells at the guys in the office, I need paper towels. Well, you've got these two guys in the office who are terrified of the sight of blood. And so what they do is you see the office door open up and a hand comes out holding a single paper towel. They're obviously in a little bit of shock as well at this point. So he takes the paper towel and puts it on my arm and it immediately just soaks through. I mean, I'm losing blood at a rapid pace here. So he yells at him again, I need more paper towels. And again, that office door opens up. A hand comes out holding a single paper towel, puts it on my arm, and it immediately soaks through again. Well, then he yells at him, I need the whole roll. In so many words, he said that. I think he added some expletives uh, with that. <laughs> and that at that moment, at, then the guys inside the office ripped the paper towel dispenser off the wall and just handed the entire dispenser. And so he's wrapping my arm in paper towels at this point, you know, as I'm laying there staring up at the, at the roof of the factory. I'm sure it was a day to remember for those two guys that didn't come out as well. <laughs> they probably are traumatized for life. It was a day to remember for everybody that worked there. Even to this day, some I'll, on occasion, I will talk to somebody or run into somebody that was there that day. And, they remember that day so vividly. I mean, people that worked at the bank because it was a payday. People that worked at the bank remember that day because so many people came through the drive through to cash their checks and they were crying. This happened in a small town in North Carolina. And, you know, small towns, everybody knows everybody. Somebody from my high school graduating class called my accident uh, the JFK of the class of 1993. Everybody knows where they were. Everybody knows where they were. Yeah. So you're on the floor now. And what was going through your head this whole time? What was your self-talk like at this point? My self-talk, I guess the best way to describe it is I was terrified. I was in an absolute state of terror constantly because when my arm got ripped off, 
from the time it happened until the time shortly after the time he got me down on the ground, I was saying the non-Christian version of old crap. And I was saying it over and over and over. Oh crap. Oh crap. Oh crap. Oh crap. Except I wasn't saying crap. I said that the entire time until they get me down. <laughs> and I said, oh crap, until I, I saw my dad because I had never cussed in front of my dad. So as soon as I saw my dad, I said, oh God, oh God, oh God. I changed it to, oh God. I think he would have forgiven me, um, <laughs> but I wasn't sure. So I just, I changed it up, but I was laying there and I was just 1 million percent terrified that my life is about to end. I'm 18 years old and my life is ending four days before my college orientation. So that was, that was where I was at while I was laying there on the floor of that factory. You mentioned your dad got there. How did he hear about this? And he was working somewhere else in that building or on the, on the grounds. My dad had started at the factory as a maintenance worker, but over, he'd been at the factory for 23 years and actually he told me on my first day on the job, he said, it took me 23 years to earn a good reputation out here. Don't you come ruin it in one summer. So I was like, yes, sir. Uh, message heard loud and clear. But my dad was in a meeting in the front office and a call went out basically across the whole factory that there was an accident um, and the accident was in the silos. And so anybody that felt like they could help was going in that direction. My dad was the probably the third or fourth person to get to me that day. The next person that got to me was actually the last baseball coach I ever had. He was somewhere when he heard the call out, so he started running in that direction and somebody came by on a golf cart and he jumped on with them and and they rode out there. Well my old baseball coach was in the Navy uh in his younger years and he knelt down beside me And he took his hand and he basically turned himself into a human tourniquet. And he grabbed under my right armpit and just squeezed absolutely as tight as he could, trying to slow my blood loss. Then the next person that got there was my dad. And the look on his face was one that I had never seen before. He, Like I was saying earlier, he was in a meeting in the front office. And when he heard one of the college students had been hurt, He didn't wait on them to say meeting adjourned. He jumped up and took off running. So when he got there, he walked up to me. And like I said, we were looking at each other. And I'm sure the look on his face matched the look on my face. It was just a look of of just pure fear, dread, terror. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni, She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, 
I pick a meal based on my mood for that day, I heat it for a few minutes, and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut. With Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic, go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I think in that moment, my dad had already blamed my accident on himself. Because he had gotten me the job and he sees me laying there on the, I'm his only son. I'm his youngest kid. He sees me laying there on the floor of that factory, basically bleeding to death. There's a puddle of blood that has already formed beside me. That's massive. My dad, I think actually took my accident worse than I did. He struggled with it up until the day he died. My dad struggled with with me losing my arm. I told him numerous times, Dad, it wasn't your fault. You didn't get me the job so that I would get hurt. You were trying to help me earn extra money for college. You were doing something in my best interest. An accident happened. I told him that, gosh, 30, 40, 50 times. And I think the last time I told him, he got it because I didn't say it to him anymore after that, because he was like, I've been waiting on you to tell me that for so long. And I said, dad, this is probably the 30th, 40th, 50th time I've told you that. But it was the first time he really heard it. When he ran up and saw me laying there on the floor of the factory, he had a pager on his hip, uh, his work pager. And he turned around and he, he took it off his hip and he turned around and he threw it across um, where I had run to was actually a train shed it was right next to the silos and that's where they came and dropped the, the powdery substance off. That's where they came and dropped it off. Well, there was a train parked there. And so he took that pager off and he turned around and he threw it up against the train and his pager just shatters into a million pieces. And my dad actually walked away 
when I tell this story, I see people when I say my dad walked away and they're like, well, how could your dad do that? But my dad was in such shock at the moment. He didn't know what to do. So he only walked like three, four, five steps away. And then one of the next people that got to me is actually, he is now the safety director at that factory. Uh, He came and he stood above me and he saw me laying there and he was also an EMT and he had a decision to make right there in that moment of, do I put a tourniquet on Jeff's arm or not? It seems like a no brainer of a decision. Well, of course you put a tourniquet on his arm, but he also knew that if he put the tourniquet on, there was no chance that they would be able to reattach my arm because of the damage that would happen to the arteries and veins and stuff in my arm. But he had to make a split second decision of do we risk him dying with the potential of getting his arm back or do we do everything we can to save his life? And so he made the decision to save my life. And so I'm laying there on the floor of the factory, looking up at the ceiling and I see him start taking his belt off and I'm laying there looking at him like, hang on, it's not that kind of party. You know, let's, let's keep our pants on here. Uh, But what he did was he took his belt off and he wrapped it around my right arm and just cinched it in absolutely as tight as he could just to try to slow whatever blood loss that he could. That action probably saved your life then. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, which we'll get to in a little bit about the amount of blood that I lost. But I, I think that in the time that it took the ambulance to get there, if that tourniquet hadn't been cinched in, I don't think I would have made it. Because when he cinched the tourniquet in, the guy, my my baseball coach, was really good friends with my dad. You know, we would go play golf together sometimes. And he walked over to my dad and he said, Jeff needs you, buddy. And so my dad came over and knelt down beside me and he grabbed my hand and he said, let's pray. And laying there on the floor of the factory together, we said the Lord's Prayer. And a little while later, I think from the time of my accident until the time the ambulance got there was nine minutes because the hospital was only about five minutes away from the factory. So the ambulance backs in and they load me up on the ambulance and take me to the local hospital, which I said, like I said, was only about five minutes away. They had already called to get a helicopter to come down and get me because in a small town, you know, you're at a small hospital and they can't always handle, you know, a situation like mine. They, they're they just basically trying to keep me alive until they can get me somewhere that can help me. I get to the emergency room at the local hospital. Within a few minutes, my mom and stepdad, they came in. Uh, my dad came in and we're in there talking and I'm, I'm writhing in pain and moaning. And at times I'm yelling. Because just having my arm ripped off was, because that's basically what happened. It wasn't chopped off. It was a pulling slash ripping. My, you know, the the big bone in the upper part of my arm was snapped in half. And, you know, I saw, I, I saw two, three inches of my bone because my skin had been ripped up way up higher than where the bone had stopped. So my family comes in and they're talking with me and I'm, I'm laying there, you know, just in excruciating pain. Did they give you anything for the pain? They were, yes, they did. They started giving me morphine for pain and I guess eventually it got to where it was starting to take the edge off 
a little bit, but it didn't take the pain away. But they were giving me something to try to make me comfortable, but it, it wasn't really working. Because at the same time, I'm still terrified. Even though I'm in a hospital, I know that we're still in an emergency situation. And I'm scared that basically any breath, any heartbeat could be my last at any possible moment. And so I was just, I was in a lot of pain. I was in constant fear. But then my mom told me, said, your grandpa is here and he wants to see you. So I said, okay. So I said, give me, just give me a second. And so I just did my best to calm myself down because my grandpa and I were as tight as two people could be. I love my grandpa. He he passed away years ago and I still think about him every day. Uh, but we were as tight as any two people could be. And so I'm laying there and I said, okay, bring him in. And they brought him in and I, I lifted my head up and I said, hey, Paul, Paul, how you doing? And he said, I'm doing okay. How are you? And he came and he, and he grabbed my right foot and he just stood there holding my right foot. And my grandma was standing right there next to him and just seeing the looks on their faces. And when he said, how are you doing? I said, I'll be okay. I said, I'll be out there swinging a baseball bat again before you know it. And he said, okay. And he squeezed my foot and he turned around and walked out. I'm laying there and I said, is he gone? Is he gone? Is he gone? And once they said he was, I started yelling again because I didn't want him to hear me in pain. This was pretty bad timing for your mom and your stepdad because they were in the middle of a project at their house. What was that? (laughs) My parents were having brand new carpet put in their house. And so every piece of furniture that we owned was sitting on our front porch or in our front yard. And (laughs) so my dad called my mom. My dad was still at the factory when, when they were taking me to the ambulance and my dad called my mom. My mom's name is Phyllis. And he said, Phyllis, are you sitting down? And she said, no. And he said, well, I need you to. So she sat down and he told her, Jeff has just lost his arm. She said back to him, what do you mean Jeff has lost his arm? He's been in an accident and he's lost his arm. And so now my mom is also in a state of shock. What do you mean Jeff has lost his arm? And the person on the, that was at the house installing the carpet had to get up and leave the house because he told his boss later, he said, I had to get out of the house because I was about to throw up on their brand new carpet. People come to my parents' house. like So my mom, she immediately starts calling church people and says, pray for Jeff. He's been in an accident. People start coming to our house. And like my parents are trying to decide, what do we do? Like my mom and my stepdad are like, we've got our furniture everywhere. Our son's in the hospital with with only one arm. And so neighbors, like people started finding out and came to our house and put everything back in the house. My parents left. My mom and stepdad left with all of our furniture still sitting out on the porch and in the yard. They left and went to the hospital. And people, as they found out, they came to the house and they started moving everything back in. So that that's one good thing about being in a small town. So my, you know, when my family gets there, they're talking to me, and I'm, I don't like my family to worry about me. So I'm, I'm trying to tell them I'm going to be okay, but I, I know they could tell I was lying because I didn't know if I was going to be okay. Right. You had to fly to a major hospital. 
how far was that? I mean, how, how, if for somebody, if your family was going to drive, how long of a drive is that? Yeah. When, when I was in the hospital, they told me, well, from, from that hospital that I was at from our hometown to Duke would be a two hour drive. They weren't sure, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I've got a tourniquet on, but I'm still losing blood, you know? And so an ambulance to them wasn't an option. So they, they had already called for a helicopter to come get me. And so I'm in the emergency room at the hospital and that's when they're loading me up on the gurney and they're, they're taking me out to the helicopter. And that's when I found out that they were taking me to Duke university medical center. Well, I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. So the last place I wanted to go was Duke university medical center because you know, that's about as big a rivals as you can get North Carolina and Duke. And, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, they've already pulled for the devils. They're the blue devils. So why would I want to go somewhere that's rooting for the enemy? But I'm like, well, I'll go there if they can reattach my arm. At this point, I was still hoping they could reattach my arm. I didn't know anything about a tourniquet. I didn't know the condition of my arm. So they loaded me up on the helicopter and started flying me to Duke University Medical Center but then we started having issues on the helicopter. You would think, well, what what kind of other issues could you possibly have? Well, one of them was, I told you that they were giving me morphine for the pain. Well, morphine made my nose itch like you wouldn't believe. I've never heard of that side effect. Oh my gosh. Anytime I have to take any kind of pain medicine, the first place I feel it is my nose. I don't know if I'm weird. Maybe I'm the only person in the well, I know I'm weird, but I might be the only person in the world that experiences an itching nose from, or I feel any kind of medication that I take, the first place I feel it's my nose. And with morphine, it made makes my nose itch like crazy. Well, I only have one arm now, and that left my left arm is full of IVs and tubes and anything that you can think of, I cannot bend my left arm. So my nose is itching and I can't scratch it. And not only that, but they have an oxygen mask over my nose and mouth because on occasion I would start to hyperventilate. I never lost consciousness through this entire thing. I remember everything in vivid detail. I never lost consciousness until they put me to sleep. So they've got this oxygen over my nose and mouth. And so I am laying there. My nose is itching like crazy. And I, I had told them when they were taking me out to the helicopter, I told them, tell the nurse to please scratch my nose because it itches so bad and I can't scratch it. In the emergency room, my mom would basically sit there and scratch my nose for me. So she told, they told the, the, the nurse on the helicopter, he's having a side effect to the morphine that's making his nose itch. Can you please scratch it for him? So she says, sure, no problem. Well, when we get up in the air and we start flying, other things are happening as well. She's watching my vital signs and she's not thinking that much about my nose. I've got this oxygen mask over my nose and mouth and I'm trying to shake it off so I can tell her to please scratch my nose. Well, as I'm shaking my head, she thinks I'm freaking out. She thinks I'm, she, and she's like, calm down, calm down, calm down. Well, I'm trying to talk to her through the mask to tell her to scratch my nose. So I finally got it off. I said, can you please scratch my nose? So she scratched it for like two or three seconds. And then she put the mask back on. I think in that, in that flight, she scratched my nose twice. It was supposed to be a 45 minute flight, but we had to fly around two thunderstorms to get to where we were going. So it was supposed to be a 45 minute flight. It ended up taking an hour and a half. At that point, I'm like, why don't we just fly through the thunderstorm? I mean, 
what else is going to happen? Well, are we going to get struck by lightning and go down in a plane crash or a helicopter crash? If so, then I could be on the What Was That Like podcast twice for having an arm ripped off and then what it's like to survive a helicopter crash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> we flew around the thunderstorms and finally got there an hour and a half later. The only good thing about it was my family my mom arrived a short time later, a very short time later, maybe 30 minutes later, because instead of a, I took an hour and 30 minute helicopter ride, she took a two hour car ride. But by the time I got to the hospital at Duke, uh, my medical records say that I had lost three fourths of my blood at this point. I'm wondering how you even survive living on 25% of your body's blood. Well, the only thing I can say is I had a lot of people praying for me. A whole lot of people praying for me. And yes, I think the tourniquet, you know, the fact that he's one of my really good friends now, his name is Judson Smith. He's the one who put the tourniquet on my arm. Him doing that played a key role in saving my life. But I also think everybody praying like they were played a key role in saving my life too. Because how you can survive on 25% of your blood, how you can stay alive, stay conscious, I, I don't understand. That's the other thing. You were conscious the whole time. So so your mom got a ride to Duke. Your stepdad stayed behind just to pack a bag and make sure the house was in, you know, everything was secure with the furniture inside and all that stuff. Then he had to call your sister. Where was your sister at this time? My sister was living in a town about three hours away. She had gone to college and got married. And when she got married, they, they moved about three hours away. So she was at work when my accident happened. You're right. My stepdad, he had to stay around because, you know, they can't just, everybody can't just leave because then you get two hours away and you have nothing. So he stayed around to pack a bag while a friend drove my mom to the hospital. My mom was at the hospital in bedroom shoes because like she was, she was just gone. As soon as she heard the news, she was out the door and gone. But my dad or my, my stepdad stuck around to call my sister. My, my sister and I were always very close. Uh, she's three and a half years older than me. But me and my mom and my sister have always been really close. You know, my, my parents got divorced when I was in the third grade. And it was always me and my mom and my sister. So we became really, really tight. And so my stepdad knew the effect that my accident was going to have on my sister and he didn't. Now this was back before social media and things like that. So the chances of her finding out were going to be tougher, but he didn't want her to hear about it from anybody outside of our family. So he stuck around and he made that phone call to my sister. Let's hear from your sister. Her name is Christy about getting that phone call. My name is Christy Thompson and I am Jeff's sister. At the time of my brother's accident, I was in college as well as working a part-time job at a makeup counter in a department store in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The day of Jeff's accident was just a typical day, and then the phone rang at my counter. It was my manager asking me to come to her office. This was out of the ordinary for her. If she needed me any other time, she would just come find me. I don't know that she had ever asked me to come to her office before, so I felt like something must be wrong. My first thought was that I had made a customer mad, and I was trying to replay the day's events as I made my way to her office. 
When I reached her office door and saw the look on her face, I had a physical reaction. I felt sick on my stomach, and I just wanted to yell, what? Just tell me, who is it? Who died? I don't think I said anything at all. She handed me the phone and told me that my stepdad needed to speak to me. I was in panic mode at this point. He spoke to me so calmly, but I could also hear that he was trying to mask his emotions. Time seemed to stand still and race at the same time. The room seemed to be spinning. He told me that there had been an accident and that Jeff's arm had been severed and that he was being airlifted to Duke. The word severed just seemed to bounce around in my brain. A picture immediately formed of my brother with a really deep cut on his arm. Then it was like the word sunk in, severed. I knew that it meant cut off, but it was just hard to accept that. I said, does that mean cut off or just a really bad cut? Hoping that I was wrong about what it meant. To this day, I still don't like that word. Again, my mind was racing. My first thought was that I had to get there. Duke was over three hours away, and I still had to pack my bags. My manager was kind enough to drive me home so that I could throw some things together and get to Duke. I needed so badly to be with my family. I needed to see my brother's face. As she drove me home, all I could do between the tears was pray. I felt like I was a million miles away from where I needed to be and that time was standing still. But I knew that God heard my prayers. It sounds like it was it was a pretty traumatic thing for her to hear that news. Extremely, extremely traumatic. It would have been the same for me if I had heard something like that that had happened to my sister. I'm dropping everything and I'm I'm getting to wherever she is and doing whatever I can to try to help her. And I wouldn't expect anything less from her when when this happened to me. Yes, going through my accident was really tough, and it, it's it's really hard to put in words how painful it was. Most people can know what it's like to break a bone or to dislocate something, but to experience it all at the same time and then to have your skin basically just torn in two and your bones breaking in half, the the pain was unbearable, but knowing what I put my family through was brutal. I I never want to cause my family any issues. And, you know, after I lost my arm, I always tried to pretend like I was okay because I didn't want my family to worry about me. So that is one of the things that I would say probably still bothers me a little bit is the fact that I put my family through such a traumatic situation. And my coworkers that that I worked with because I played baseball with quite a few of my coworkers as long as I can remember I played baseball we were either on the same team or playing against each other so these guys were my friends to just know that my accident put everybody through that was 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 tough to deal with imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable where mental barriers no longer hold you back listen to mentally stronger with me amy morin therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. 
experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. One of the things my dad told me was, as he was running out there to the to the silos that day, he ran past the screw auger because it was on that end of the silo. He ran past the screw auger and he said he was maybe 10 to 15 feet on the other side of it. When he heard somebody yell, we've got to get this auger open and get his arm out. So he knew then somebody had lost an arm. He didn't know exactly who it was. He said when he was running out of the office in the meeting that he was in, as he pushed these double doors open, he said he prayed a quick prayer. He said, please, God, don't let it be Jeff. And he told me later that he heard God just kind of whisper to him, well, who do you want it to be then? So my dad told me right then he already pretty much knew that it was me. So some of the guys that were working out in that area, they went and they opened the auger up and they took basically what was left of my arm. They took it out and put it in a cooler and put it on ice. And my arm rode in the ambulance with me to the hospital. And then it rode on the helicopter with me to Duke University Medical Center. And when my mom got to where I was at Duke, she would come and she would you know, lay her hand on me and she would pray for me for a little while. And then she would go over to the cooler and put her hand on the cooler and she would pray, you know, for God to, to work this situation out. I can't imagine what those people saw when they opened up because my, my arm was so mangled 
as it went through the machine. I, I just can't imagine what it was they saw. That's not what they signed up for. No, it's not. And again, you know, there's that part of that guilt of, you know, I honestly, the people in my hometown, if anybody was a counselor or a therapist, like they should have sent me a cut because of all the people that I put in therapy. <laughs> I should have got a cut of that because I, I kept them in business for a long time. So they get me there. They take me into that. They've first, it was, I guess it's kind of like a prep room. They couldn't just rush me in. They had to get the team ready and everything. And so I remember the, the thing that I remember the most vividly about prior to my surgery at Duke was them loading me up on a gurney and taking me into the emergency room or into the operating room. I'm sorry. They take me into the operating room and I'm laying there looking up at the ceiling. It's, it's what you picture in the movies. It's what you see in the TV shows, all these bright lights, just a really cold, everything looks like it's stainless steel and there's these bright lights and they're all shining on you. They told me that they were, they were going to give me the anesthesia to put me to sleep for surgery. And I remember trying to fight, which seems weird, but I had this feeling that if my eyes closed, they would never open again. And I will tell you this, you never want to live more than when you think you're about to die. And so I started trying to sit up. I was trying to get off the table but they had me strapped down across my chest. They had my arm strapped down and I, I couldn't go anywhere. So they started giving me the anesthesia and they told me to count backwards from 100. And I don't think I made it to 98 and I was out, but I remember so vividly my eyes closing. And the last thing I see are these bright lights in this operating room shining down on me. Did you think there was a possibility that when you woke up, your arm would be reattached? I really did. I really did. I didn't understand, you know, what the what the tourniquet meant. I also didn't know what condition my arm was in because I didn't know how far my arm had gotten into the machine. But when you turn the machine off, it doesn't just immediately shut down. You know, it's not like turning a, a light switch on and off and it's oh it's on, now it's off. There's that time that it takes for the machine just to stop rotating. So I didn't know how far into the machine my arm had gotten. So I was really hoping that it was still intact, you know, broken bones, things like that, that they would be able to to piece me back together. But, you know, the wrist was crushed, the forearm was snapped, and then my forearm was not only snapped, but it had kind of been cut in a couple of places. And then the elbow was completely crushed. And it's like the opposite of a clean cut. Exactly. It was, it's almost like you have a, a bag of ice and you decide, Hey, I'm going to break this bag of ice up. And so you lay the bag of ice down and you just beat it with a hammer. Well, that's kind of what's happening to my bones is they're, they're just being snapped and broken into so many pieces. You, you can't do anything with it. By this time, my entire family had made it up to the hospital. Uh, my pastor, some of our really close friends, my family and friends had basically taken over the the waiting room at Duke University Medical Center. So they're all in there talking and, and praying and just sitting and just being with each other. And the surgeon came out at one point to talk to my family and said, well, 
Jeff's arm was too mangled. It can't be reattached. He said, but his hand made it all the way through the machine with no issues. And the reason why that was, was because where the auger grabbed my glove, as the auger turned, my glove just stayed right there next to that thread. So nothing happened to my hand. My hand was in perfect shape. So the surgeon came to my parents and said, we can't reattach his arm, but we can attach his hand to the end of his arm. Now, my arm has been cut off or pulled off a few inches above my elbow. And they said, we can attach his hand to the end of his arm. And so my family was like, well, okay, uh, will he be able to use that hand? And the surgeon said, well, probably not, but it's never been done before. Well, I'm kind of thinking there's a reason it's never been done before. If I would have woken up with a hand where my bicep is, I would have been a very angry <laughs> I would have wanted to hit somebody in the face. If I would have had to if I wanted to hit somebody in the face with my right hand, they'd have been have been standing real close to me. But you're invading their personal space. Then. Invading yeah. their personal I mean, I was just in my mind I, later I'm thinking like does the does the surgeon expect me to walk around clapping like a seal, you know, with my two my two hands right up by my chest? Like so thankfully, my family said, no, let's don't do that. What they did, they because I had more bone than I did skin, they actually cut the palm of my right hand off and a little bit up the outside of my arm. They were able to cut that skin off and attach it so that we didn't have to do these major skin grafts, you know, on the rest of my body. So I was thankful for that. I got to ask you this, given your love of comedy now. I mean, if you if you today had a hand hanging off of your right bicep, would you kind of get a kick out of that? No. <laughs> no, uh, it, it it wouldn't. It well, one, if I would have woken up and the hand would have been there, I'd have been like, "Take me back in, cut it off. I don't want it." Especially because I couldn't use it. That was the one thing that that just made no sense to me. It's like. When the surgeon said it's never been done before, well, there's a lot of stuff that's never been done before, and there's a reason it's never been done before. It's stupid. It seems like the only reason they would consider doing it was so that you would at least still have a, a hand and you wouldn't look that unusual. But that seems like it would be <laughs> so much more unusual. Like how, like people would look at that in public and say, how, what's the story behind that? How did that happen? And I get stared at enough as it is. And it's not because I'm that good looking that I do get stared at because my wife's that good looking. Like, how did that guy end up with that girl? And the only thing I could say is prayer works. Um, <laughs> the miracles still happen, but I get stared at all the time for just having one arm. And if there would have been a hand there, oh my gosh, like I cannot <laughs> imagine the looks that I would get. From people, people's, I mean, people stare at me all the time and I always wear a sock over my arm because when it got the way it got mangled and the way it looks, it's just, I, to this day, 28 years later, I still don't like looking at my arm because of how, how mangled it got. I still don't like looking at it. And there was no way, no, now I do use my arm for uh, one-handed jokes. I've got all kinds of one-handed jokes and things like that. It's gotten me out of speeding tickets before. 
uh, people are like, well, that's not fair. I was like, no, you have two hands. I have one. That's not fair. I said, I'm just playing the hand that I've been dealt. So (laughs) they're like, well, you can't always use that. I'm like, as long as I have one hand, yes, I can. Now I've seen some pictures of you, but I don't see a prosthetic. Did, did you get one of those or what are your thoughts on that? I, I have a couple of prosthetics and after I lost my arm, I wore it every day and I always wore long sleeves. It didn't matter what the temperature could be 120 degrees and I was going to be in long sleeves because I was trying to hide the fact that I only had one arm. I didn't want anybody to know. So when I would walk, I would try to swing it like a normal arm, but it didn't do anything. I, it had no no use. I I couldn't hold anything with it. It just filled up a sleeve. So I tried to hide it, but then when I have that that hand and it's sitting on my jeans and before long, the hand starts to turn blue where it's rubbing the jeans. And so I start to look like a Smurf. And so, you know, I went to college in the mountains of North Carolina. And so people probably think I've got frostbite because I'm walking around with a hand, you know, 67 degree below zero wind chill and I'm not wearing gloves. It's like, Oh my gosh, his hand's turning blue. He's getting frostbite. No, it's just not real. And it's got the dye from my blue jeans on it. So yeah, I have prosthetics and actually they're up in the attic of my house right now. I haven't worn it. The last time I wore it was when I spoke at my grandpa's funeral and I haven't worn it since then. It was uncomfortable and I've just learned to be comfortable with who I am. I can live my life so much better without a prosthetic. So I make the best I can with what I got. What are some of the challenges that you discovered? Like maybe even unexpectedly in some situation that you realized, oh, wait a minute, I can't do this. I was in the hospital after I lost my arm. Uh, I was in the hospital for 16 days. I was in surgery for 13 hours and I was in the hospital for 16 days. The first part of that was to make sure they, they were checking. They did, they wanted to make sure there was no infection, that they had got it cleaned out and that I wouldn't have any issues. But the kind of the second half of my stay was learning how to live left-handed because I was right-handed before my accident. And people tell me, well, now you're left-handed. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm only handed, but whatever, semantics. But I was learning things in the hospital that I couldn't do, like learning how to feed myself left-handed, learning how to brush my teeth left-handed. I, For some reason, I couldn't do the the circling hand motion. So I would literally put the toothbrush in my mouth and just shake my head around to brush my teeth. Then when I got out of the hospital, by the time I got out of the hospital, between losing my arm and the hospital food being just crap at Duke University Medical Center, I had lost, I believe it was 35 pounds, 30 to 35 pounds by the time I got to the hospital. So when I got out, the first thing I wanted to do was go eat a steak. So we go to a steakhouse and my steak is now sitting in front of me and I'm looking at it and trying to figure out how in the heck do I cut my own steak? You know, because normally you have a knife and a fork that are working together as a team to cut a steak. Well, my team just got cut in half. And so I took a took my knife and just started sawing. And I basically carved my initials in the top of the steak because it wasn't cutting at all. And so my family had to get used to me only having one arm as well. They didn't. My mom looked at me and she's like, is, is something wrong with your steak? I was like, I don't know. She's like, why not? I said, because I haven't tasted it yet. And she said, why not? I said, I can't cut it. And so the look on her face is she felt so bad, like, oh my gosh, I should have known that. But so it took me and my family a long time to get used to what it was like for me to have one arm. 
it's situations you wouldn't predict, you know, something like that's going to take you by surprise. You never thought about it, but oh yeah. I, I called them sneak attacks. I never knew when a sneak attack was going to, one time I went to, uh, I believe it was a McDonald's and went in to get something to eat. And I went to go, when I got done, I went to go throw my trash away. And this was back when they had those, I haven't been in a fast food restaurant in so long because of COVID. I don't even know if they still have them, but where they had those swinging doors that you had to push open to get to the trash can. Well, I'm thinking, well, how do I do this? So I just kind of pushed the tray in to open the door up and it knocked all of my trash down on the floor by my feet. And at this point I'm so embarrassed because now everybody's looking at the poor helpless one-armed kid who, who can't throw his trash away properly. So, but those sneak attacks, you never, I never knew when they were going to come and believe it or not, 28 years later, I'll still have a sneak attack every now and then something will sneak up. Now, thankfully, you know, I'm married now and my wife is probably the most thoughtful person on the planet. Um, if you want to do a, what was that like on what's it like to be the most thoughtful person? I've got your perfect guest. She thinks of things before I do. Like if I have to take any kind of medicine that's in those tinfoil packets that are sometimes really hard to open, she'll just go ahead and open them all and put it in a packet and label it, label the baggie what it is so that I don't even have to worry about it. And she's done it without even telling me and I'll go to take my medicine. I'm like, well, there it is. She's already, she's already got it. So super thankful for a thoughtful wife. One of the things that I, that I read that you wrote was that you kind of had to learn to walk again because of losing one arm. I never would have thought about that, but it affects your balance. I would, I, that's something I never would have thought about either. That would have never crossed my mind of having to learn how to walk again. But the first time I stood up, I almost fell down on my left-hand side because my balance was off. So I learned how to walk by walking down the hallway, leaning on a wall on my right side to try to get used to to being tipped that way because I felt I was leaning uh, so far to the left. And so that was how I learned how to walk was by leaning up against a wall. Something else while I was in the hospital that I found very interesting was Every visitor that came to see me, the doctors would talk would talk to my parents first, my parents and my sister and my family that would come and see me at first. And they told them, do not mention the fact that Jeff only has one arm. He needs to be the first one to mention it. Do not mention it. So every visitor that came to my room, my family would stand outside and, and would say, do not mention to Jeff that he only has one arm. Now, I realized immediately when I woke up, I looked over at my arm where my right arm should be, and it's covered in in blankets and, and heated blankets because they're trying to promote circulation in my right arm. So I can't see my arm. So I go to lift it. And when I went to lift it, I could tell that it was gone. And so at that moment, I already knew that I only had one arm. But the doctors told my, my family make sure nobody mentions the fact that he has one arm until he does it himself. And that was mainly for your mental health. For my mental health. Exactly. Okay. Well, talking about mental health, this happened 28 years ago and you just recently had a diagnosis of PTSD from this. How did that come about? <sighs> the funny thing is, is after my accident, they sent me to counseling almost immediately and I hated going. 
but it was like a requirement. I, they were making me go. And I went to, I can't tell you how many different counselors I went to. And they're like, well, what, you know, my, my mom would ask me, she would drive me to the appointment. She's like, what did you think about? It? I was like, take a good look at this office because we're not coming back. And it was nothing against the counselor. I didn't want to talk about it. But eventually I called on and I said, they are going to send me to every counselor on the planet until I say I will talk to one. So I am just prolonging this. So I finally went to one. I said, okay, I'll talk to this guy. And I went the mandatory amount of times they made. I think they made me go to eight sessions. I said, I'll go to these eight. And so I went to eight and I was done and I never went back. I thought I was okay. Yeah, my arm got ripped off. It was a lot of pain. But it wasn't until this year that I started dealing with some anxiety and some depression. And I'm like, what is going on with me? Come to find out, I, I went to my primary care and was just talking to my primary care physician. And she said, I think you have PTSD. And I was like, but I haven't been in war. Like, I thought that was the only, the only way you qualify for PTSD is to go to war. I thought that was it. What I found out since then is if you have been in a situation where you were genuinely afraid for your life, you are a candidate for PTSD. I genuinely believe that's exactly what it has been for all these years. There are times I would deal with anxiety, times I would deal with depression. But this year, this past year has just has been one of the worst years of my life, honestly. just ha- I've gone through some really low lows. And I'm thankful where I'm at now, praying wife, praying family, my prayers, but also, you know, getting into counseling and finding, finding something that has really worked, that has helped me learn how to deal with what happened to me. And the thing that has worked, you told me about this, it's EMDR therapy. And I've heard of that, but I really don't know anything about it. Did you expect what is that first of all and did you expect it to work going in oh it's emdr i know the first two letters stand for eye movement i can't remember it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy i only know that because i looked it up (laughs) i looked it up too but i always forget the only thing i can ever remember is the eye movement part i'll be honest i thought it was the dumbest thing i'd ever heard of the way it worked was they when i went to see a counselor, a therapist, they started talking to me about EMDR. And I I said, listen, I'll try anything. I was at a point, I was so miserable. I said, I'll try anything. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And she said, okay, there's this thing called EMDR. And what it is, there's there's a, a couple ways that they can do it. The way that's the most common is you hold these, like one thing in one hand and one thing in the other hand. And from the best way that I understand it, I haven't done that kind of therapy, obviously, because I only have one hand. But I, I think the way that works is you get a little impulse in one hand, then you get a little impulse in the other hand. And it triggers what it's like when you have, uh, when you're in REM sleep, when you're in your REM cycle of sleep. Well, she said, I want to do this. She said, but you only have one one hand, so I don't know how that would work. I said, I'll put it behind my knees. I'll put it under my armpits. I will do whatever. If you think it'll help, I'll do whatever. So she said, well, let me, let me figure some things out. And the next time you come, we'll give it a try. So the next time I came, she said, what we're going to do is put these headphones on. And 
I'm sure you've had one of those hearing tests where you listen for a beep and whichever ear you hear it in, you raise that hand or raise the other hand. You you basically hear a beep, but it's just it's like a what's that thing called a metronome where it beep 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 and it just beeps back and forth from ear to ear, and that is also supposed to somehow trigger what it's like when you're in that REM cycle of sleep and it helps to get down to the core like what's really deep down rooted inside of you and so she's telling me this and even though I told her listen I'll try anything in my mind I'm thinking this is the dumbest thing I have ever heard of in my life and so we put the headphones on and it starts beeping then the beeping stops and she's like, oh, she would ask me questions before the beeping would start. And uh, then she would ask me a question afterwards and she's like, okay, how do you feel right now? And I was like, aggravated and annoyed. She's like, oh, okay. What's got you aggravated and annoyed? And I was like, this does, this seems stupid. And so she was like, she's like, just give it a chance. I'm like, okay. So what am I supposed to be thinking about? She would tell me what I'm supposed to think about. So I would start thinking about that. Then the beeping would start again. And then I would take them off. And I'm like, and this works for everybody. And it's the only time in my life I've ever heard a doctor say this or a therapist or counselor or anything say this. This works for everybody. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I put the headphones back on. It starts beeping. I take the headphones back off. I was like, so what am I supposed to be thinking about again? And she explained it to me. So I put the headphones back on and I'm listening to the beeps. And I'm still thinking, this seems like hocus pocus. This seems so weird. But I told her, I, I, I was like, Jeff, you said you would try anything, so try it. So I closed my eyes and I just started thinking about what it was she told me to think about. And then she said, okay, what did you get? And I was like, I didn't get anything. She's like, okay, let's do it again. And before long, I started getting down to there was the thing she told me to think about was, was like on the surface. And after doing this four or five times, I am all the way down to the root of this is what I thought my problem was. But after a few of those cycles, I was down to what the root of the issue was. And I have been absolutely blown away at how it has worked. And so I've talked to a couple of other people since then who have done it, and they said it's been the exact same for them. She said this works for everybody. So if they're the listeners, if you, <laughs> I would say give it a shot. You're you're not going to lose anything, and it has done wonders for me. Absolute wonders. I'm just fascinated by the mind and our brains and what they're capable of, and and we so we know so little about them. That's just an incredible thing. I don't. I want to be respectful of your time. We've gone on a while here, but I, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. Okay. One is, I hope you filed a lawsuit against the the glass factory because obviously they were at fault here. I did file a lawsuit. Uh, we thought we were making a very good decision. We picked some attorneys that were two hours away from my hometown. We wanted that that law firm to have no ties to that factory at all. Just keep them separate. That way there's no, you know, hidden agendas or anything. So we go and get these attorneys and they tell me, oh my gosh, your case is so strong. This is a slam dunk. This is going to be one of the easiest cases we've ever handled. It seems like it would be. Yeah. It, and it, the sad thing is, is it was, 
the sadder thing is we kind of got hoodwinked a little bit. Um, come to find out the the law firm that I was at that we had hired, they told me, you know, you've got it. This is easy. Well, then all of a sudden they their narrative changed when it came to talking to me and my family. They said, they're offering you a settlement and you should take it because if you don't take it, you might not get anything. And I'm like, well, what happened to this is a slam dunk and all that. And they're like, no, it, it, we've come to find out it's not that easy. It, there's a lot involved and we're like, oh my gosh. So it's better to get a little bit than to get nothing. You know, it was kind of a risk. Do we go for it all? But, but the attorneys were pushing us so hard to settle. So now we're th- they're the experts. They know what's going on better than we do. So we took the attorney's advice. Okay, we'll we'll settle. And we settled for just a ridiculously low amount. And we found out later that the law firm that we had hired, they had a case come to their office that was going to be like multi, 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 multi millions of dollars that could come into that law firm. So what they were doing was they were trying to clear their books. Every one of their clients, they said, you need to settle, you need to settle, you need to settle. And so that's what we did. We didn't know what was happening. So we settled and I have made the decision to forgive everybody that has had anything to do with my accident. I've made a decision to forgive them for taking the safety equipment off the machine, even bringing, even having the equipment out there to work when there's no safety equipment on it. The people that they're no longer at the the factory, but the people at the factory who lied about me, you know, because I started having shoulder issues and they were saying left shoulder issues from overuse of my left arm. And they were saying, you know, we had to go see a mediator one time and they were saying I fell off a cliff while I was rock climbing and I caught myself by the tips of my fingers. And that's how I started having shoulder issues. And I'm like, but they, they had said in court that I fell 100 feet and caught myself by my fingertips. I was like, Superman isn't that strong, but I made the decision to forgive all of these people uh, because it's one of the things I live by. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting on the other person to die. If I choose to not forgive somebody, I'm giving them power over my life still, and I'm not allowing that to happen with anybody. I think that's the best way going forward. Sort of related, but sort of unrelated. Since this happened, you have actually set a world record in an unlikely category. What did you do? Uh, Years ago, back in 2005, and then I did it again in 2006, I broke the world record for the longest drive of a golf ball hit with one arm. And the record was held by a guy, I think he was in Sweden or Norway, um, and his record was 236 yards. And the what that record is, it's from the point you hit the ball until the point the ball first touches the ground. They don't count the bounce and the roll and stuff like that, because if that's the case, I'd go out to a airport and bounce the ball down the runway, and I hit the ball three miles. But they count it from the point you hit the ball to the point the ball first touches the ground. And you have to get the land surveyed to make sure it's flat enough because there can't be a slope because then you go stand up on a mountain and just hit it off into a valley and you're a monster. 
the first time I, I broke the record, I was living in Oklahoma. That was where I had gone out to Oklahoma to attend Bible college after I graduated from Appalachian State University. And the first time I broke the record was out there at a driving range. And I hit the ball 200 and gosh, what, I always forget it, what it was the first time because I remember the second. I think it was 252 yards in the air. But that one never became official because the the driving range where I broke the record, they told me, oh, we'll, we'll get the land surveyed, we'll submit the paperwork, and it's it's done. Well, they never did. So the following year, I flew home to North Carolina and broke it on one of the golf courses that I, I grew up playing on. Um, it was the eighth hole at a golf course in Laurenburg, North Carolina, called Scotch Meadows. That day, it was my last swing. I was so tired because I've been you know, warming up and just you think you don't really get tired from swinging at a golf ball, but when you are just unleashing every ounce of you into every swing, you tire out quickly. But on my last swing, I ended up hitting the ball in the air, uh, 258 yards, two feet, four inches on the fly. It, it was, it was pretty cool because I actually made it on the ESPN's top 10 plays of the week. Uh, for that, uh, they called me by the wrong name. I was on ESPN both times for breaking the record and both times they called me by the wrong name. Uh, the first time they called me um, Jeff Barnhill, and the second time they called me Steve Bardell. So people asked me if I was going to break the record again, and I was like, I'm going to keep breaking it until ESPN gets my name right. Uh, <laughs> but on the video that was on the top 10 plays of the week, it says that I hit the ball 263 yards because that's what one of the lasers that they shot was saying, but when they surveyed it, it actually said 258 yards, two feet, four inches was the precise number. Still enough for the record though. It was, it was enough for the record. Unfortunately, that one never got into the Guinness book of world records because before mine became official, there was a guy with two arms who competes in like long drive competitions around the world. His arms look like my thighs and he took one arm off the club and he hit one, I think it was like 292 yards in the air. And I could hit a ball 292 with one arm, but that's counting the bounce and the roll. So we were in talks with Guinness for a long time, and they were considering setting up a separate category for just people with one arm. Uh, I have won a, you know, a long drive competition or two for, you know, one arm golfers. That's always a lot of fun, but um, I did, I attempted to break the world record to really just to be able to open doors, to be able to go out and, and speak because that's, that's what I love to do. And that's what you're doing these days. You're speaking, uh, you've written a book and you've got a website that talks about all this. Tell us how, how can people get in touch with you and, and, uh, what's going on with all that? Uh, people can get in touch with me. Uh, they can go to my website, which is jeffbardell.com. And Bardell has one L in it. Everybody always wants to add that second L, but it's jeffbardell.com. You can hear me share my testimony. I travel around and I speak to churches and I also go around and do uh, motivational messages where I talk about losing my arm and I talk about breaking the record. So I'll share motivational messages in schools and in businesses and things like that. And then I also do safety seminars as well because I don't want my accident to be in vain. There, there are three main things that I want my accident to do. One is to lead people to Jesus. Two is to help motivate people to for things that they thought that maybe they couldn't do that they can. And the third one is to keep people safe 
in these factory situations because, you know, people are working in these in dangerous situations all the time and, and they don't know. They might think it's safe, but there's always it could always be safer. And so those are kind of the three things that that I like to go out and talk about. And then my book, it's called If I Would Have Died That Day. Uh, that's available on my website as well. It's jeffbardell.com slash shop. You can actually go onto my website and right there on the homepage, you can read the first chapter for free uh, just to see if it if it floats your boat. And if it does, then you can go over to my to the shop and purchase it and I'll get it shipped out to you as quickly as I can. And I know you're on Facebook and Instagram. We'll have links to all of these things uh, on the episode notes for this episode. And also we'll have a video of that record-breaking golf shot. Yeah, that one, that swing was actually at a long drive competition. And there was a group of long drivers and they said, will you set the standard, set the record for uh, our long drive competitions for the longest drive of one arm? And I told them I would. And that one, I can't remember if I hit it. Yeah, it was 288 yards was that one. But that one counted the bounce and the roll. But yeah, there is a, a video of that and there's a picture as well. The picture is of a long, at a, I was at a long drive competition down in South Carolina and, and there's a picture from that long drive competition that I won down there. Thanks for coming on here. Thanks for sharing your story. It's very interesting. Well, Scott, thank you, man. This is, this is so much fun. And I was, I was super nervous, <laughs> even though I travel or not, I do public speaking. I told my wife, I was like, I am more nervous about this podcast than <laughs> I have been. I said, I feel like I'm about to speak to 50,000 people. And she goes, well, you kind of are. <laughs> yeah, you kind of are. <laughs> yeah. Kind of am. So, um, I just hope that my story, you know, will help somebody or motivate somebody or, you know, maybe keep somebody safe or just to draw somebody closer to Jesus. That's, that's why I live my life the way I do. Jeff didn't really go into this during our conversation, but when he got to the hospital right after the accident and he was taken into surgery, he came very close to dying because of the extensive amount of blood he had already lost. He does talk about that in the book, though. One of the things he mentioned really stuck with me. Remember when he was in the ER and in severe pain and his grandfather came in to see him and Jeff prepared himself to put on a strong face because he didn't want his grandpa to see him in such pain. It reminded me of a previous episode I did quite a while ago. This was with my friend Sue who was skydiving and her parachute didn't open properly and she came crashing to the ground. She was still barely conscious, but in really bad shape with a lot of broken bones. But even in that condition, her first thought was about her teenage daughter who was on the ground and had seen Sue fall. Sue didn't want Jessica to be traumatized by this, so she came up with a plan and gave instructions to the person who got to her first. My daughter, I, I described to Lee, I said, Lee, my daughter's 14. She has long blonde hair. She's wearing jeans or shorts and a t-shirt or whatever. If you see a young lady come over who looks like that, tell me and I will stop moaning because I don't want her to hear me in pain. I want her to know that, that I'm okay. So he would, he'd say, okay, she's like 50 feet, 20 feet. And I'd, she'd come over and I said, honey, 
mom's fine. Can you go to the car and get my driver's license? So she would go to the car and I, as soon as she was out of earshot, I would moan again um, because the pain was just excruciating. And she would come back and I'd say, thanks, honey. Now can you go get my sunglasses? <laughs> and she would, she would go to the car um, and she would do that. And then the third time I asked her to go get my, my insurance card because I knew that the paramedics were coming and I reassured her that I was okay, but I knew she was worried. If you haven't heard that episode, you should go listen to it because Sue is a pretty amazing person and her recovery after that crash is incredible. It's episode 17 called Sue Crashed a Skydive. Okay, we're not even close to being done yet here in this episode. I've got a really cool announcement about a new benefit for supporters of the show, but just before that, we've got a couple of voicemails. First one is from Tracy with an observation about the episode, Danny Found a Baby in the Subway. Hi, this is Tracy. I just wanted to point something out. First, I find your podcast very interesting and it makes my ride, long distance ride, go much quicker. And I listened to the story about the couple that found the baby on the subway. And I wanted to point out that I think a very interesting coincidence was that the police named him Daniel and the hospital named him Ace and his last name was Doe since his parentage was unknown. And if you put that together, that says dad. And when the man who found him pointed out that it was meant to be, I think just the fact that he ended up with those initials is just another sign that it really was meant to be. They sound like they did a great job with him and such a lucky baby to have been found. Keep up the good work. Take care. And I also got this message from Bill. He was the guest in the last episode titled Bill Got a Dreaded Phone Call, where he told the story of his daughter Kristen being murdered. Bill's passion now is to raise awareness about dating violence, so he's written a book and he has a podcast where he talks about that. Hi, Scott. Bill Mitchell. I just wanted to say I love the way the momentum has been continuing after our interview started airing. It's like I feel this surge and you know it feels pretty good. I say that because it's taken a lot of time to get the whole campaign going at this end. You know the, the paperback, the ebook, the audiobook which is new, and the podcast. I have to tell you that this infusion of interest that I'm seeing has to be because of our interview on what was that like. Has to be. That episode is sending great numbers of newcomers to me. And it's great because when they when they come my way, they can learn all kinds of life-saving messages and what to do. So you've really helped get people to what I'm doing. Thank you so much. And, you know, my podcast is like lighting up and the book sales are way up. So anyway, I'm just saying that together... You and I are practically guaranteed to improve hundreds of lives, and you just have to know we'll save a few, you know, with our thoughts too. Preventing the next Kristen Mitchell tragedy has always been my central goal. You know that. I couldn't have done this without you and your podcast, Scott, so I just want to really thank you again, and and look, I hope we can chat again soon, okay? Anyway, bye now. I hope I talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, here's what's new. After the last episode, I arranged a Zoom chat for anyone who's a supporter of the show at any level. 
you can sign up to be a supporter at whatwasthatlike.com support. Anyway, we got on Zoom, and we had a bunch of listeners on there, and they asked me questions about the podcast, how I put it together, sort of some behind-the-scenes stuff, and we talked about some of the episodes, and it was just nice just getting to know each other. And we're doing it again this Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. If you support the show at any level, you'll get that invitation. And this time, we're going to be doing some What Was That Like podcast trivia. You've binged all 100 episodes? Think you have a pretty good memory of the details? Well, here's your chance to test it out. Going to be fun, so I hope to see you there. Again, you can sign up as a supporter at whatwasthatlike.com support. And related to that, the new raw audio episode, number 21, was just released. In this episode, there's an unexpected officer-involved shooting at the scene of a car crash. Just sit down, sit down. Sit down. A police officer approaches a suspect not knowing what the man has in his pocket. If you don't stop, I'm going to tase you. I'm I'm not playing you. Take your hands out your pocket. Take your hands out your pocket. And police try to save a woman who's being held at knife point inside an apartment. He has, he has a knife in his hand. He has a knife in his hand. Get, get open the door. Open the door. Open. All right, that was a lot of things to cover. And that means we're now at this week's listener story. This one is from Mary, and it comes with a content warning. This story involves non-fatal injury to an animal. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. This is Mary from Southern California. I'm fairly new to your podcast, and I find that the first-person accounts are so interesting. It gives dimension to the stories, some of which made headlines. Your recent episode of Karen Runge's encounter with poachers and their dogs in South Africa made my heart race because of an experience I had with my dog. This happened in March of 2020. My dog Mila was 11 at the time. She's a mixed breed rescue. She's black and caramel in color. And our best guess is Doberman, Beagle, Shepherd, maybe Boxer. She has short hair, ears that flop at the tips, and she can smile. She's 40 pounds of energy, athleticism, and curiosity. And she's super smart and friendly. She and I walk daily about four miles on a fairly consistent route through our suburban quasi-rural neighborhood. It's not unusual to encounter other dogs and even horses on our walks. Most of my neighborhood doesn't have sidewalks, so we typically walk in the street or on the horse trails. On this particular March morning, Mila and I had set out on our usual uh, seven o'clock walk. Our route took us by a number of houses where dogs would bark as we passed. Being mindful of the early hour, I would do my best to walk on the opposite side of the street so as to keep the barking to a minimum. We were in the last half of our walk heading south down a side street that wasn't heavily traveled. The only people using that particular street lived in one of the dozen or so houses on the street. For that reason, I usually walked down the middle of the street, checking occasionally behind me for the improbability of a car approaching. We had just turned down this street when I caught movement out of the corner of my eye. When I looked behind me, I spotted two Rottweilers approaching at a slow trot. I held up my hand and said, stay, which they did. Instead of looking curious like most dogs we've encountered, I can only describe them as watchful. To go directly home, I would have had to walk in their direction, 
uh, I decided instead to pull Mila up close to me and continue walking away at a leisurely pace so as not to encourage them to chase us. I said, stay one more time and turned to walk away. In no time, they were right up next to me. My dog didn't seem alarmed and I was hopeful that they would all just sniff and move on. But before I could even comprehend what was happening, the larger of the two dogs clamped his mouth down on the back of my dog's neck and dragged her to a front yard that we were in front of. He proceeded to press her down, never taking his mouth off of her neck. The most ungodly screaming was coming from her. I too was screaming for help. The second Rottweiler was standing next to my dog, and I was afraid that if the larger dog was able to flip Mila over, the second dog would go for her belly. A friend who has had many dogs once told me that if two dogs are fighting, you don't grab them by the collar because you don't want your hands that close to their mouth. Instead, you should grab their back legs and pull them apart. I grabbed the dog's back legs in an attempt to do just that. He shifted position in such a sudden jerky motion that it knocked me down on my back. I again tried to grab anything that I could get a hold of to get him off my dog, but he was so muscular, there was just nothing to grab. I remember realizing that these dogs were killing my dog right in front of me and that I couldn't stop them. The home I was in front of was occupied by an older resident who was likely reluctant to come outside even if she heard me. The house to my left was unoccupied as it was for sale. And the house behind me was newly remodeled and I doubted that I could be heard through the new windows. Plus being March, not many people were leaving windows open so the chances of anyone hearing me screaming were minimal. Then I realized that a car had approached. The driver stopped and came running over. I heard him say, what are you guys doing out? As he proceeded to kick the larger dog. As soon as my dog was freed, I asked if he would please drive me home. He said yes, so I managed to get my dog into his car. Her eyes were wide with terror and she was trembling uncontrollably. It took him a few minutes to return to his car, at which point he drove us home. I managed to get his first name, Andrew. I learned later that he recognized the dogs as belonging to his neighbor. He had called the neighbor whose wife came out and got the dogs. Once home, I took Mila into the bathroom where I could wipe her off. Her neck was wet with what I had thought was slobber, but the washcloth came away bloody, so I knew that she was more seriously injured than I originally thought. I took her to our vet who irrigated and cleaned her wounds. They said they generally didn't do deep cleaning as the tissue was already so damaged and they didn't want to do further damage. They sent her home with antibiotics and cautioned me to watch for infection. And as it turned out, the wounds became infected and she had to undergo another surgery with stitches and drains. To give you an idea of how large the Rottweiler was in relation to Mila, the wounds stretched from punctures next to her right ear across to her left shoulder. She was a pretty pitiful sight. I was able to track down our guardian angel, Andrew, who said that he had left for work a little later than usual that morning. Had he left at his normal time, it's unlikely that any other cars would have driven past. I was able to track down the owner of the Rottweilers as well. He admitted that it was his fault that his dogs were out. His automatic gate closer had bumped his truck bumper as he left for work, and unbeknownst to him, the gate had reopened, allowing his dogs to get out. He took full responsibility for the attack, covering all of our vet bills, which were quite extensive. Mila's fully recovered. She's more wary of loose dogs than she used to be. She'll be 13 next month. 
We still walk every day, not always four miles. She determines our route and duration these days. She has uh, severe arthritis in her back legs, but she's still game for walks every day. In so many of your guests' stories, there's a turning point when something just happens at the right time. Had I been able to get the larger dog off my dog, I'm not sure how that would have unfolded. I can't imagine those dogs allowing my dog and I to just retreat. In my case, a guardian angel named Andrew arrived at just the right time.